Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking about two upcoming screenings at the Whitney Humanity Center as part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series, uh, a series that we've spoken about a bunch on this show before. Uh, and I am very happy to have in the studio Brian Meacham, the film archivist uh, for the Yale Film Study Center and the organizer of these screenings, uh, as well as one of the filmmakers behind uh, a screening series that will be taking place uh, next Wednesday night, Norman Wiseman. Uh, we will be talking about some of the movies that he's worked on, what we'll be playing uh, at the Whitney Humanity Center, uh, and the the significance of of the work that is often uh, in you know kind of hiding in the the depths of the Yale Film Archive that Brian manages to suss out and and share with with all of us here in New Haven. So without uh, further ado, let's jump into our our first conversation about uh, a screening taking place next week, uh, a screening focusing on the films of Norman Wiseman. So Brian Norman, thanks so much for. For coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you two here. Thank you. Okay. So, Brian, as the impresario of this event, I'm going to ask you, uh, ask you the first question. Uh, you know, if, if folks uh, show up at the Whitney Humanity Center next Wednesday at 7 o'clock, I believe is the screening time, what, what, yes. should they, what should they expect to see? Well, we're going to be presenting some films uh, that are of a, of a type that people may not have seen before or may not have seen in a long time, and certainly... Uh, types of films that don't get shown very often. And these are what I would call sort of documentary and industrial films from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Um, by industrial films, I mean films um, made, uh, uh, you know, commissioned by a company or an organization uh, to sort of tell a story and, and promote um, their their organization. And these are fascinating time capsules and uh, uh, you know they sort of really show sort of the 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 mood and the the tenor of conversation about really interesting and important topics that may not have been you know sort of uh, widely discussed in in other uh, areas. But but when you when you get this sort of encapsulation in an industrial film, uh, they're they're really fascinating. So the topics range from. Uh, you know the need to uh, to save and keep track of one's finances, to uh, you know how uh, bridges and tunnels uh, can uh, you know uh, have an impact on the growth and the life of a city, to uh, the roles uh, competing and and coexisting roles of unions and management in terms of the health and life uh, of of a of a company or a, or a factory, so they're they're sort of all over the map in terms of their subject matter, but you know they they have a unifying um, you know source. They are all films that uh, that Norman uh, made between the 1950s and 1970s. So I I was fortunate enough to be able to watch uh, some of these movies before next week's screenings, and I think that the eclecticism is definitely the first word that comes to mind for these these. Uh, you know, Norman has made hundreds of movies throughout his career. And before we turn to the filmmaker himself to hear his perspective on them, I wonder if you could offer, you've kind of laid out what an industrial film is uh, and some of the subjects covered by these movies, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how the Yale Film Study Center first intersected with Norman Weisman and his movies, and, and why are you putting on uh, a, a night of screenings dedicated to this one filmmaker? Sure. Well, uh uh, we have a mutual friend, Arnold Gorlick, um, who uh, who introduced uh, Norman to us, and 
uh, you know, we often hear, oh, you know, there's a, a filmmaker or a collector or someone who has um, a bunch of film they'd like to donate. Would you be interested? And we're always interested, but I'm always sort of a little bit skeptical, uh, concerned that perhaps the film will be something that either we already have or is in fairly poor condition or all the prints are faded or they've begun to deteriorate. And so it was with a bit of skepticism that I drove out to Norman's house and, uh, uh, as soon as uh, I saw him ascend a ladder and uh, and reach uh, up into the uh, attic of his garage to retrieve these prints and open some of the cans, uh, all of my skepticism began to melt away. These were more than likely unique prints of these films, and they are in stunning physical condition. Uh, Norman definitely got the best uh, the best quality, uh, the best copies of of the prints of his films that he possibly could. The color is gorgeous. The physical condition of the prints uh, is beautiful. These films, some of them are are more than fifty years old, and we're going to be we're going to be projecting them from the sixteen millimeter and thirty five millimeter prints on Wednesday. The the same ones that Norman uh, donated. So they're beautiful. They're underseen, and I can't think of any other arena besides an archival film screening where people will really be able to see these films. So. It's part of our mission uh, to share our collections with the community, uh, and we're so excited to, to have Norman here um, to, to share this uh, evening with us. So I'm, I'm always so grateful for episodes in which I get to talk with the actual filmmakers, the, the people who, who made the movies that we spend so much time talking about. Uh, and so, so Norman, I'd, I'd love to turn to you uh, to talk about some of the movies that we'll be screening next week. And in particular, I'd love to maybe frame... Uh, my first question to you in the context of what, what I see as so differentiating uh, your work and your work that we'll be playing next week from maybe most, I, I've, I've got a feeling that many of our listeners probably never even heard the term industrial film, but are certainly aware of commercials. I mean, especially this time of, uh, you know, proximate to the Super Bowl when everyone who pays attention to media is thinking about the kind of slickest, funnest, highest production value uh, kind of gotcha um, commercials uh, that that play during that very kind of highly publicized event. These movies that you have made, you've worked on, that you'll be playing next week are not those types of kind of short, slick, um, kind of gotcha, kind of instantly uh, kind of pleasurable and entertaining ads, but rather very much focused on narrative, on character, on story, on what we come to expect from from feature films uh, as opposed to commercials. So I wonder if you could maybe tell tell us about a few of the movies that we'll be playing next week, Norman, and I don't know, speak to a bit about the stories that you're telling in these industrial films. Uh, I am absolutely delighted and thrilled that here in 2018, uh, we're going back into the 1950s and the 1960s when uh, documentary films... Uh, became a very potent uh, force in general public education. Uh, it's although uh, they are corporate, many of them corporate and government sponsored. Uh, they're much more than just industrial films. The School of the Ozarks uh, was one of the United States Information Agency's uh, most popular uh, films as part of their overseas program being shown in USIS libraries uh, east of the um, Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and uh, they were uh, part of the Cold War. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, 
humorously at the USIA, United States Information Agency, we used to jokingly call ourselves Cold Warriors. Uh, And the proof of the pudding is that after the first 1956 Hungarian rebellion and then the uh, Czech Spring in 68 and then the fall of the Berlin Wall, certainly these documentaries about American life uh, had a cumulative effect as to what the student populations were doing. Matter of fact, they were so effective that the governments, Eastern European governments, often hired thugs to burn down USIS libraries. Hmm. Uh, Well, of course, the students would flock and read Life magazine and Time and Life and get some sense of uh, American culture, American books. And this program continued for quite for many, many years until finally, uh, in the age, of, in the days of Joe McCarthy and uh, Conan Shine touring the libraries and pulling John Steinbeck and Upton Sinclair and Jack London's books off the shelves of these libraries, calling them communist left-wing propaganda. Uh, not even the prestige of uh, Edward R. Murrow in those days could bail out that program, uh, which. Uh, quickly uh, died through lack of funding. Uh, The um, other film, that's the School of the Ozarks, everybody knows uh, was a product of Borg Warner Corporation, which back in those days, uh, it's hard to believe it, but a great sense of corporate responsibility uh, existed in the 50s and the 60s. And um, uh, Borg Warner uh, was one of the leaders, corporate leaders, in terms of corporate responsibility, which that idea has almost virtually disappeared now in in 2018 in terms of responsibility to community well-being and community education. Everybody knows basically dealt with productivity uh, and human productivity and how it affects the economy. and you know what, let's let's uh, let's pause there for a second because you've you've brought up a few uh, a few ideas that that really jumped out at me as uh, kind of a providing a sort of thematic continuity for your work at least the the movies that I've watched and for um, you know for I'm glad you brought up corporate the the notion of corporate responsibility because I think a, a lot of your movies have to deal especially uh, everybody knows and also the um, the movie about the transport workers union of America the best is yet to come seem to be portraying kind of opposite ends of a mid-century kind of post-industrial American debate about the relative power that workers in America should have in relation to the uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, and to the business owners and to the people uh, kind of who who own the industry. I mean, you jokingly referred to yourself as cold warriors, but these movies seem to be very much engaged in a mid-century American debate about who kind of what is the most kind of authentically American approach to running an economy? Is it one that is dictated entirely by factory owners, by workers, some combination of the two? And I wonder how, I mean, these are, you know, these are works for hire, I understand, but how did you see yourself walking the uh, tightrope in that debate? Did you find yourself leaning towards one side over the other? Are these propaganda pictures to a certain extent? or they? I, I always considered myself a witness, and thanks to the power of film, thanks to the power of documentary film, I was able to record 
uh, as a witness, as an independent witness. I didn't think of myself as a propagandist. The word propaganda was a pejorative word, and uh, it was terribly abused in World War One and World War Two, and it acquired a bad odor, shall we say. But certainly an effort of the credit unions in Impulse 90, the film Impulse 90, the credit unions were horrified how workers were using credit unions for uh, just plain, uh, just abusing the credit that had been designed for mortgages and education and medical uh, emergencies. They were just um, basically going uh, high on the hog with with the, with the with the cash flow, and they made Impulse 90, which went out to school systems and we went out to labor unions, and did have an impact. It was welcomed. Uh, this was before the the present epidemic of credit card abuse. This was the very opposite of credit card abuse. They were trying to reverse it. So that certainly was more than propaganda. That was certainly an attempt to make it a better society in which to live and raise our children and to educate workers as how to handle their cash. So, uh, and you know, since you, since you brought alone, up, I was not alone. We we, we had we had our self respect and our dignity, and we're much more than just public relations. Uh, although some of many of the industrial films are pure public relations, the the um, labor union films. Um, uh, a, um, uh, the, um, uh, the labor union, the labor union films, uh, were basically a attempt to, to rejuvenate the image of American labor, hmm. uh, uh, the two labor union films, because at that time, uh, unions were thought of as being nothing but cor- corrupt and, uh, uh, they were, in, they were out of favor. The, a, a single step was the Bobby Kennedy uh, revitalization Corps, which started up in Hartford, financed by some very enlightened people uh, up at their Channel 3, and it told the story of Edmund Cole, uh, and in Connecticut in, the, uh, in that period of time, I believe it was in the 1960s, uh, the Revitalization Corps working in, in Hartford with ex-prisoners and other problems, also at the same time, won a lawsuit, enabled the, the beaches of southern Connecticut being open to the public uh, right up to the high tide line. Mm-hmm. Before that, beaches, people would declare their own private beach private and keep the public away from it. So it did have its effect. And then, of course, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, and the Revitalization Corps idea died uh, with his death. So I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to pause you there for a second, Norm, because, again, you've, you've said so many interesting things. I want to make sure to, to get a word in. Well, I, I think that... Um, I'm glad you you brought up the the Hartford movie. I, I I apologize if I get the title wrong, but a single step, I believe it's called. And it really seemed, you know, even though that was from the the '60s, it really seemed a, a companion piece to me, in my eyes, to one you made about two decades earlier called An Adventure in Friendship, uh, which is this uh, kind of post-war black and white, almost a kind of neo-realist feel movie about uh, kind of the showing the big brother movement in looking after a kind of a wayward youth in, in the kind of highly well, congested New York city. And I wonder before, before I go over to you, Norman, I want to bring well, Brian let, let back. Me con- you, you mentioned adventure and friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my first film. The uh, New York state passed a youthful offender law, the first of its kind. And so I sat there in children's court and watched the youthful offender, uh, law being put into effect 
uh, which was uh, basically uh, also with the assist of the Big Brother movement. And it told the story of a different way of handling juvenile delinquents through the Big Brother movement. And uh, that was made in 48, that summer and fall of 48. And those so-called delinquents uh, turned out uh, through the effect of the uh, Big Brother movement to have very productive and future careers that they would otherwise not have had if they'd simply been incarcerated under the old law. So there is a marriage between documentary film, a law, and institutions. By the way, the Big Brother movement did pay for it. So you might say it's part of their public relations budget, but it was a, it was a conjunction of three very powerful educational forces which no longer exist today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's of interest to your students to know that uh, there was a very, very, uh, uh, shall we say, idealistic, if not altruistic use of film uh, back in that in in the days that I uh, in the fifties and the sixties. That's well. I, I think that's a perfect way of putting. It. And really, uh, I mean, connecting an adventure and friendship, uh, a single step, and even something like the language they speak, uh, which focus uh, all three of these movies in my eyes. Uh, kind of focus on different progressive approaches to kind of socializing and kind of reintegrating as productive members of society, um, social outsiders and kind of victims of uh, kind of in post-industrial decline and urbanization. And I wonder, Brian, to bring you back in the conversation, uh, you singled out um, the the credit uh, union film as, as one of your favorites. But I wonder, as, as you hear Norman talk about um, the maybe progressive value that documentary film had in mid-century America and some of these themes that keep coming up in the movies he's mentioning, uh, cities, urbanization in in uh, mid-century America, and also uh, the kind of progressive approaches to um, achieve some kind of racial integration or economic justice. Uh, I wonder how you see, um, do you see like a coherent message across all of these very different movies or even an interesting kind of filmic representation of city life in America in mid-century? Well, I, I think I do in that, you know, they they all do so much more for me, I think, than than sort of they need to. You know, if, if you were just given a precy of the of the content of the film, oh, here's what it's about and here's the story it's going to tell. I feel like you might have a, an impression of a film that that might seem, you know, sort of dull or pedestrian. But when you actually watch the films and you see how they're constructed, they really there are so many beautiful images, so many skillful and interesting uses of camera, of the speed of the film, slow motion, fast motion, uh, just the color composition. They really are uh, sort of, you know, so much better than they than sort of than they need to be. And and I think the the quality and the craftsmanship that went into making them obviously, uh, you know, returns upon the film itself. It helps the film become that much more uh, sort of engaging and convincing. Uh, I'm thinking of a film uh, here to there, which is not, you know, so much about the social aspects of things, but more about urbanization and about bridges and tunnels made for the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority. And the way Norman used uh, lenses in that film, the way he used slow motion, perspective of, of, a, of a kid jumping up and down, the sort of uh, everything from the visual elements to the narrative perspective of a kind of a boy wandering through the city and sort of how bridges and tunnels may affect uh, the growth in the future and the layout of that city. Uh, you know, they're they're just fascinating uh, in in the way that they combine these topics that 
are urgent and necessary in the moment, but also with this artistry that's very much of a piece with that that era that it just makes them so much more fascinating than they seem on the surface. I'm so glad we're on here to there because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. But first, let me tell listeners or remind listeners that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking with Yale film archivist Brian Meacham and filmmaker Norman Weissman about a night of screenings coming up next week, next Wednesday. Uh, do you have the date on that? It's February 28th. February at 7 28th PM. at 7 yep. p.m. at the Whitney Humanity Center, free and open to the public, a night of screenings of Norman's movie. Um, Norman, you mentioned uh, how, you know, so I've, I've been reading uh, um, uh, Robert Caro's The Power Broker, and ta- which is all about the story of Robert Moses, and talk about this, you know, progressive ideal of liberating uh, kind of public space and waterfront property from the claws of the kind of robber barons and the su- the super rich and making kind of more park space available to people, uh, the kind of ethnic masses cl- clumped up in the cities. That's what I don't, Moses was trying to accomplish with, with the erection of, of uh, Jones Beach. And also I see that that mindset very much in here to there, which to contemporary uh, audiences, I think looks like a model of urban renewal that is kind of anathema to what people, young people living in cities today want, which is not highways kind of towering over inner cities, uh, kind of ferrying people in cars to, to public beaches, but rather uh, kind of a, a denser uh, development, the kind of Jane Jacobs style of kind of neighborhood on a block development. And I wonder if, I mean, and also that is, you know, one of the most visually striking movies that I've seen of years where, as Brian was saying, you have, you speed things up, you slow things down, you have this kaleidoscopic presentation of the social ill of traffic. I wonder if you, well, wherever you want to start with here to there, either the well, visuals I, or the, the narrative. I'd like to comment. Uh, I have two comments. Uh, I, I agree with uh, Brian. He's uh, quite right. The um, uh, here to there, which played at the New York World's Fair, uh, in the ninth, all year of '67 and and '68, was shown on an enormous big screen, and obviously had no other purpose but to entertain and razzle dazzle, uh, uh, and uh, it was very popular, and it just ran continuously uh, for two two World's Fair seasons. But there was an underlying political uh, motivation there, uh, there which trying to pay a tribute to Robert Moses, who built all the bridges and all the highways that New York City and the environs uh, benefited from. And, of course, uh, towards the end of the the film, it became quite overt. He dreamed. He dreamed of building a bridge across Long Island Sound, a dream that never came true, uh, because the Navy objected to having the back door of New York Harbor closed if a bridge ever collapsed. But so there was an overt political uh, motivation to basically a, a razzle dazzle entertainment. But one of the nicest things, uh, if I may quote uh, Edward R. Murrow, who uh, was the last, shall we say, effective uh, uh, director of the United States Information Agency, who fought for the budgets, and of course, ultimately, uh, he died of lung cancer, and the budgets just kind of disappeared. But he made a wonderful comment about the uh, the educational uh, uh, programs of the uh, of the United States government, of the U.S. Information Agency, USIS. He said it was very much like uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Uh, these films celebrated human dignity and human freedom, and uh, 
the proof of the pudding was uh, the students who would flock to these libraries and risk uh, censure from their own governments and go in there to freely look at these films and read these books and read these newspapers. And that kind of summarizes uh, that program for me as I look back upon it with, with a great deal of pride and other people that I know that worked on those films. I'm also very proud of what we did. Norman, can you speak a bit to the visual experimentation of a movie like Here to There? Because you you say that it was meant to be razzle-dazzle and fun, but as Brian mentioned, you know, this, uh, again, this kind of kaleidoscopic presentation of, of traffic reminded me as much as anything of the, like, kind of 1920s uh, Soviet and German, like, city films, yeah, stuff like yeah, Man with definitely. a Movie Camera and stuff like that. So what, I don't know, what it kind was, of formal constraints did you have? And, it was multi-screen, multi-screen, multi-dimensional, a photograph with prisms and various other uh, tricks, and you're absolutely right. It was uh, de- definitely uh, fi- uh, influenced by the European filmmakers who specialized in, shall we say, uh, technically brilliant and imaginative editing and juxtapositions. The power of, of, of a lot of the Russian films, which I'm sure you show, uh, live basically uh, in, in the editing, the, the juxtaposition of scenes and the fast cutting. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, present-day modern television commercials, uh, really in the in the long run, where these where these uh, shall we say, thirty and forty second film clips uh, running for 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 sixty for sixty um, for a minute or two. Uh, they just overwhelm the imagination and your senses with, with visuals, drown you with, with visuals. Uh, and in a sense, the heritage there did that in a very uh, circumspect way. Um, uh, at least I felt that it was circumspect because the audiences used to laugh in the right places and share in the right places and enjoy it. It was, it was a relief from the rather uh, serious aspects of the 67 and the 68 World's Fair, which were... Uh, intellectually very challenging in those days. But you're absolutely right when you talk about the influence of the European, great European d- directors, uh, Eisenstein and uh, the, the German directors, I, the Ufa people. I, I think that this this may be as appropriate a transition as any to the our, the next topic that we'll, uh, that Brian and I will be discussing on the show, the 50th anniversary celebration of uh, of the Griggs Collection, uh, where the Yale Film Archive will be showing uh, many short movies from turn of the century, from the 1910s, 1920s, uh, that kind of by some of the silent era greats. And that movie in your oeuvre that I'd love to bring up, that of course is not made in America, but it happened in Holland. <laughs> this this absolutely delightful kind of silent film, kind of comic <laughs> chase through the streets of Amsterdam, showing off the various uh, kind of wonderful sights and sounds of, of Holland as filtered through the Netherlands National Tourism Office. Uh, I mean, talk about, a, again, a very formally different movie from the experimentation of the yeah, well, up here well, to it, there. Well, it, happened that, it happened that Holland was designed for pure entertainment. Paramount Pictures released it as a short subject with most of its features for about two years. And I think that the uh, somehow somebody in the in the uh, Netherlands Information Service or the Dutch Tourist Office uh, uh, persuaded um, uh, Paramount that this would make a great short, and so it did play. It happened in Holland, of course, was intended just uh, a scenic tour of, of the of the major attractions of of Holland with a Sadie Hawkins day, the girls chasing the boy. 
And by the way, the girl who chased the boy and won him actually married, uh, and they have been married happily almost for 40 years. <laughs> That's then, great. As a matter of fact, Kara uh, uh, and, and, and Chase uh, were over here in May at my son's wedding on May 16th. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're still very much alive. She caught her. Sadie Hawkins caught her man, married him, and they lived happily ever after. That's that's great. I mean, talk about, I mean, not to keep throwing around different film references, but it really, you know, as much as it reminds me of those kind of 1920s uh, kind of almost keystone cops chasing through the cities. It also, you know, has the playfulness of another very important movement in early 1960s cinema, which is that of kind of new wave film coming out of France, where uh, there's just kind of an explosion of, of vitality and joy and celebration of the the uh, capacity, the kind of formal capacity of cinema. Brian, I don't, I don't know if it, it happened in Holland is a favorite of yours or if, if you've screened that one yet. But as you yes. think about your final pitch for why folks should come to Norman Weissman's screenings on Wednesday night, uh, either through it happened in Holland or not. What what do you say to, sure. to listeners? Well, I think it's. I mean, it's the sheer variety. Uh, we're going to be showing six of Norman's films made between 1958 and 1970. So a range of things on both 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter, both black and white and color. Um, a, a film, you know, like It Happened in Holland, which we'll be screening, one that is just simply a lot of fun to watch and has uh, a great sense of dynamism and and energy to uh, films about very serious subjects. Um, you know, th- some of the films that we've been talking about, um, about uh, labor relations, about, um, you know, credit unions and the power of, of, of saving and uh, the future of a cashless society. I think Impulse 90 may be my favorite of the bunch, simply because it so accurately predicts uh, things like online banking and online shopping, and it, and it sort of lays out a the idea of the the world of the future from 1969, and in some ways, it's not that far off. Um, so, I think it's the variety of subjects and and just the uh, the the fact that I can almost fairly confidently say you will never see these films anywhere else. Uh, they're 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 really a joy to see, and they really unlock an entire era and an entire style and category of filmmaking that I think not a lot of people are very familiar with, and and anybody who enjoys watching films and learning um, uh, about uh, how and, and why films were made will really get a kick out of, of these, and especially, you know, the privilege of seeing them with Norman there and, and having a conversation uh, after the screening will be great. Well, these movies will be screening at the Whitney Humanity Center at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, February 28th, free and open to the public. Norman Weissman, the filmmaker, will be there to give a, a post-screening talk back, if I understand correctly. Uh, Norman, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, talking to me and our listeners, and we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. I uh, thank you very much for the privilege. I look forward to next Wednesday. All right. Thank you, Norman. Okay, and coming up next, a conversation about another screening uh, of put on by the Yale Film Archive folks. But first, let's hear a little bit from Allison Jackson's Man from Lowell. I'm 
Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Meacham, uh, who can hear me now through his headphones. Perfect. Excellent. Uh, A little on-air production meeting. Uh, And we will be talking about another screening, yet another, do do those guys and gals at the Yale Film Study Center ever stop? You may be wondering. Well, the answer is no. Also, I just want to say, you may be wondering, uh, you know, this is the Thursday after Black Panther came out. Why, oh, why aren't you all talking about Black Panther? Well, never fear, listeners. That is because we've already recorded a podcast about Black Panther, of course. I was very happy to have uh, Preston Wilson from The Joe Ugly Show, Sean Murray from the Fantasy Filmball podcast, and Lucy Gelman from the Arts Paper in the studio on Sunday to record an hour-long conversation about the latest uh, Marvel movie set entirely uh, in the city or in the kind of fictional African country of Wakanda, and also a little bit in Oakland. But if you want to hear our conversation, and I'm sure you do because everyone wants to hear everything about this movie right now, uh, go to deepfocusradio.com or check out the WNHH SoundCloud page. But today, we will not be talking about uh, Black Panther, although I'm sorry that I missed the screening of Emperor Jones that you all did a few weeks ago with, with Paul Robeson. But um, <laughs> but instead, today, we are going to be talking about a screening taking place tomorrow on Friday the 23rd at the Whitney Humanities Center, another free open to the public screening as part of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive. And this one is really about the archive itself, celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the acquisition of the kind of collection that really form the cornerstone of, of what we think of as the Yale Film Archive today. So uh, instead of fumbling through a description of that, uh, maybe I'll turn to the man himself. Brian, what is it that we'll be playing tomorrow? And, uh, you know, what, what happened 50 years ago? Well, uh, yeah, the people have sort of been wondering what this event is about and why why we're choosing now to sort of celebrate this. The, the Yale Film Study Center itself has only been around since 1982, so it's definitely not not been 50 years uh, the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive screening series has only been going on for four years. So the anniversary that we're celebrating uh, is the 50th year anniversary of the arrival at Yale of what was known in 1968 as the John Griggs Collection of Classic Films. Now, John Griggs was a radio and television actor. Uh, you can hear some of his radio shows online. He has an amazing, had an amazing voice. Uh, and he was also a major silent film collector uh, and distributor. And uh, in the 1950s, 60s, uh, he died in 1967, uh, he would host screenings uh, in his home in Englewood, New Jersey, uh, of 16-millimeter silent films. And he was well-known enough, well-connected enough, and had films of such quality that he would end up showing them to people like 
Lillian and Dorothy Gish, who would come to his house to watch their own films they made with D.W. Griffith, but that could not be seen any other way uh, at that point in time. He was very, uh, very well known, very well connected, and was also a mentor for many people in the world of, of film history and film preservation. Um, the late departed David Shepard, who uh, was a major film preservationist, he uh, grew up uh, watching films at John Griggs's house. Leonard Malton, whom we all know, uh, from the age of, of 12 or 13, started going over to John Griggs's house with his buddies and watching classic films. Now, thinking back to this era, this was a point in time when, you know, of course, there was no VHS, there was no real home distribution of, of films, so it was very difficult, besides sort of the midnight movie on on TV to see older films, and so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of what John Griggs did was sort of to help keep a love of of classic cinema alive. And in 1968, the year after he passed away, his film collection was purchased uh, uh, through the help of a number of Yale alumni and brought to Yale to become the seed of a sort of teaching collection to allow students and faculty to see and study film uh, with the resources here on campus, rather than having to continually borrow from other libraries or rent from the Museum of Modern Art. They really wanted to have a collection here on campus that would form what they called, even back in 1968, the Yale Film Archive. Hmm. Uh, you know, we uh, we spoke about a different collection that the Yale Film Archive acquired a few years ago on this show, maybe two years ago now, called the Herb Graff Collection. Uh, and when you describe Griggs uh, kind of setting up a uh, um, a ca- you know, projector in his home and showing even the actors who were in the movies themselves higher quality prints than they had access to uh, of you know Lillian Gish acting in Birth of a Nation or, or anything else. Um, it sounds a lot like you know some of the stories I heard from Bennett Graff, the son of this collector Herb Graff, about watching you know Charlton Heston and the Ted Commandments over Passover dinner as his his father, the film collector, just kind of pushed his, pushed aside the table, uh, dragged everyone into the living room and showed his films. And so I wonder. Um, what if you could as uh, maybe tell us a bit about some of the you know what di- what distinguishes Griggs's collection from others of the era? You mentioned the the quality of the prints. Uh, what are some of the movies that were in his collection that Yale acquired back in 1968? And I don't know, does uh, does he strike you as a um, as an exemplar of a certain type of film amateur film collection and kind of preservationist in mid century America, or was he? doing something a little bit different than, I don't know, what someone like Herb Graff was doing. Yeah, well, uh, Herb Graff, uh, they were contemporaries, and uh, I, though I don't have any, I don't know for sure, I'm sure they knew each other. Um, there was a small circle of, of, of film collectors uh, in the Northeast at, at that time. Um, but what, uh, what distinguished um, the Griggs collection from other collections uh, we, we're lucky to have a sort of dossier that uh, Standish Lauder, who was a professor of history of art at Yale and was the first uh, instructor in uh, film history at Yale in 1967. Uh, He put together to sort of uh, promote the purchase of this collection. He described the Griggs collection um, as uh, shaped by personal tastes and a passion for quality, which Mr. Griggs has exercised over many years of film collecting. So this was known throughout the country, I think, in film collector and film, uh, you know, uh, screening circles as a very, very high quality collection. Um, Mr. Griggs was known to uh, have had uh, connections at various studios, I believe, that allowed him to uh, obtain high quality uh, prints. Uh, Back in those days, it was fairly simple to make a print of a print that you uh, might have, you know, coming through your theater. And so low quality duplicate prints could be made. 
uh, Griggs Collection films were known for being very high quality. It was about 207 titles that came to Yale. We've identified more than 100 that are still in the collection. So these were prints that were already 10, 15, 20 years old in 1968 when they came here. Add another 50 years on that. So many of these prints are edging towards 70 years old. And they're still screenable. So the prints that we're screening tomorrow night are actually the actual prints from the collection. Uh, So we're excited to be able to not only entertain with an evening of film, but also demonstrate the durability of film and also the wisdom of of both Mr. Griggs in collecting these films and of the university in acquiring them 50 years ago. And these are all 35-millimeter They're all 16-millimeter prints. 16-millimeter was really the only uh, sort of available uh, gauge for, uh, you know, private acquisition back then. But you ask about some of the the titles. This is, you know, Griffith, Chaplin, Keaton. This is uh, Murnau and Stroheim. This is the, the, you know... It's sort of the the film canon. Um, it's divided. The list is divided up into sort of the great American directors, the comedies, the and then the sort of the uh, the international films. There's Murnau. There's Eisenstein. You know, it's 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 sort of a greatest hits of the first uh, sort of eighteen ninety nine to nineteen forty in film. It's pretty incredible. You yeah. uh, you and your team at the Film Studies Center uh, scanned a number of contemporaneous articles uh, that appeared throughout the country uh, in nineteen sixty eight, announcing. Uh, the acquisition of this uh, collection by Yale University. Uh, some of the other kind of movies and filmmakers that jumped out to me of early westerns by William S. Hart, horror films by Lon Chaney, like Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, dramatic films by John Barrymore and Eric von Stroheim. Um, this is you said this is this acquisition happened 14 years before the Film Study Center came into existence. Uh, what did this? Uh, kind of quantity and quality of film acquisition really mean, you know, by a major American university like Yale in 1968. Uh, how did that, you know, compare to what other universities were doing? How, how strange was this how, in terms of how universities were using film and film archives in classrooms? Well, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it was certainly, it certainly made news. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was just because of the incongruity on the surface of, uh, of a, an august institution like Yale taking, getting the films of, of someone like Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. But uh, as, as the years went on, the Griggs Collection of Classic Films, you know, was, was purchased by Yale and became the Yale Collection of Classic Films. And by uh, sort of the 1970s, it was known that the, the collection had grown to more than 400 titles. So some of the people who were instrumental in helping the collection come here, like Spencer Berger, who was a, a local here in New Haven and a graduate of Yale and was instrumental in bringing the collection, he then donated his film collection. He was a renowned expert in, in the films of the Barrymores, and so he donated many of his uh, Barrymore-related films to what was known then as the uh, Yale Collection of Classic Films. And by the early 1980s, there was a real call for, first of all, starting the film studies program at Yale and establishing a film study center. And it was at that point in 1982 when the Film Studies Center under Don Crafton was established that the Yale Collection of Classic Films became the Film Studies Center collection and became under the supervision of the Film Studies Center. There there was some contemporary uh, crowing about the various size of other collections at other universities um, and saying that, that with this in one fell swoop, Yale acquiring these 207 prints, that we leapfrogged over the collection at Harvard, which of course was always the the yardstick with which to measure um, that the Harvard Film Archive was established in the 1970s, if I my memory serves, 
and uh, you know their collection grew at a sort of more steady and and uh, and rapid pace at that point. But at least in the beginning, uh, when this collection was acquired by Yale, it was a major step and somewhat uh, noteworthy in in the field of university film collections. So. I understand that uh, history of art or um, the art school professor Standish Lauder was also instrumental in bringing this acquisition to Yale and was kind of a pioneering figure, at least here at Yale, and I imagine in academia more broadly in teaching film uh, in art schools and also film history. And I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, back in 1968, in those first few years after this acquisition, you know, how how were these movies or how would these movies have been used in the context of the school? Yes. Well, so he he wrote the dossier in support of this acquisition, and he described that the films would have four uses, courses in film history, courses in the art school, courses in the drama school, and film elsewhere in Yale College. And there's an article from the previous year that describes his film course and lists a, a number of the films that he screens. And I think you know, more than half of the films listed in that article ended up being in the Griggs collection. So right then and there, you could get a sense that if he taught that course the next year, he would be able to pull those films from the Griggs collection. And even just a few years later in the 1970s, in the Yale Daily News archives, you can find listings of screenings um, in Hastings Hall in the Art and Architecture Building saying, Yale Collection of Classic Films screenings. And so they would just, not only for courses, but just for the general public, they would have screenings, uh, sort of double features of films from that collection that would sort of be part of the whole fabric of all the various vibrant film societies at Yale. So there was the Yale Film Society, of course, there was the Law School Film Society, there was the Medical School Film Society, various, you know, um, residential college film societies. And along with that, a Yale Collection of Classic Films series went on that sort of showcased films, uh, sort of kind of canonical films from this collection. Sounds reminiscent of the Treasures from the Yale Film Archive series. Yes, well, we, we you know, <laughs> keeping that tradition alive. Never said we were the first ones to do it. <laughs> um, so, unlike uh, the previous or the first segment on the show, which we were talking with Norman Weissman about his very difficult to find, although very easily accessible and enjoyable films, a lot of the names that we've mentioned thus far are pretty household names for people who who love movies: Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Fritz Long. Uh, why should, uh, you know, what, what should folks expect to see tomorrow night? What are some particular movies that you'll be screening that you're most looking forward to seeing uh, from this collection and presented on the big screen? Uh, well, so some of the films that we're screening are uh, are certainly available. Things like The Mark of Zorro, which is the Douglas Fairbanks feature that really established the Zorro character. It was the first ad- first film adaptation of the of the Zorro character who had been created just the year before. Um, the Balloonatic, which is a, a, a classic Buster Keaton uh, two-reeler uh, made in 1923. Um, and Rescued from an Eagle's Nest, which is an Edwin Porter film from 1908. So that's uh, we're getting a little bonus, 110th anniversary of that film, um, which is actually, strangely enough, the acting debut of D.W. Griffith, who was not known for his acting. Um, but it also features um, Henry Walthall, who was one of John Griggs's favorite actors. And there's actually a lot of Henry Walthall in the in the collection. And those films aren't that easy to find. Obviously, Rescued from an Eagle's Nest is a six-minute short you can certainly watch on YouTube if you so chose. But uh, presenting it from uh, John Griggs's personal 16-millimeter print is a real joy. 
And there's another film in there that we're showing called Gaumont Graphic, which is a, a newsreel collection from 1918. So it's really going to be a snapshot of what was going on in the United States 100 years ago. And that's not something that uh, we've been able to locate elsewhere. I'm sure it's in other film collections, but it's certainly not something that people could easily see. It features everything from uh, war savings bond drives uh, related to World War One to Mary Pickford greeting returning soldiers. So it's a really interesting kind of snapshot of 1918. And so that's going to be a, a gem. And also to have that with... Uh, the uh, beautifully skillful uh, accompaniment of Donald Sosen, who will be uh, tickling the ivories. That's right. That's uh, something you can't get anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The the very last question I'm going to throw your way, which is one of the things that I read in that 1968 article about the original acquisition of the collection, is that the Great Collection did not just consist of movies, but also a treasure trove of movie memorabilia, movie theater notices, slide projectors, lobby display photographs, posters. Um, and that's you know something that we spoke about with uh, David Gary when he was on the show a few years ago talking about his the VHS uh, kind of acquisition uh, horror movie and exploitation VHS acquisition that that Yale made at his and Aaron Pratt's insistence. Uh, do do any of that uh, movie memorabilia does that any of that still exist in the Yale Film Archive? That is a very good question. Can I, can I leave time. it at that? No, yeah, um, uh, my my biggest uh, regret is that we do not have, at, at least you know, not to, to the research that I've done thus far, um, still in our possession, the carefully uh, created and edited musical scores that he made for many of his films. That's one of the things he was known for. He would edit together on reel-to-reel magnetic tape uh, scores to accompany these films. I believe they came with the collection, but I do not know what happened to them between 1968 and now. Um, and it's a, a mystery to to hope to solve uh, with some more research and uh, and just fingers crossed that there's not a dead end there. But um, but no, as far as I know, the the uh, supplemental material is not in our collection. And I hope it's somewhere else at Yale, but um, sometimes you fear the worst. <laughs> well, what still is very much uh, in the collection are these movies from the. Uh, from the Griggs Collection, the acquisition 50 years ago that will be presented at the Whitney Humanity Center on Friday, February 23rd at, can you give me the time, 8 o'clock? 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Yep. Okay. Um, Brian, it's always such a pleasure to have you on the show. We'll link to these screenings on the Deep Focus Radio website, and we will see you at the Whitney Humanity Center. Thanks again, Tom.